looking at what's happening in rural Peru or you know the mines of South Africa. If we look at that and say, you know, that just ain't right. That's not acceptable. Well, then that begins a conversation. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, what's happening down the road, you know, in Toledo or, you know, the farm fields of Florida? Well, that isn't right either. Um, it really promotes justice anywhere by turning a blind eye to it somewhere else. And I'm paraphrasing what Martin Luther King said about, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and joining me today is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. Vernice, you are back from working on a project last week. Where were you? Freeport, Illinois. Beautiful Freeport, Illinois. And how are the people in Freeport? They are really coming along. Uh, thanks to some support that we've given them, they are really coming along. Vernice, usually we are interviewing folks who are working directly on projects that are positively impacting communities in the U.S. Today we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the fair trade movement and how the movement to improve working conditions in other countries has an impact on the quality of life for the working poor around the globe but how it also impacts workers and communities in the United States. Well, I'm super excited to speak with Rodney today, Mike, especially because I worked with two great colleagues at the Ford Foundation from 2000 to 2003 who were key funders of the burgeoning fair trade and fair forestry movements at the time, Dr. Michael Conroy and Jeffrey Campbell. And I'm so pleased to see how both of these sectors have grown over the past 16 years. Our guest today is Rodney North, the Director of Marketing and External Relations at Fair Trade America. Rodney has dedicated the last two decades of his life to the fair trade foods movement. He earned the nickname the Answer Man because of his extensive knowledge of fair trade, the global food industry, small farmer cooperatives, socially responsible and sustainable big business practices, and how business models intersect with human development. Rodney, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. So, Rodney, we'll, we'll, we'll get deep into the fair trade movement in a minute, but we'd like to start out by understanding our guests a little bit. So tell us about the moment you realized fair trade was something you were passionate about. It really happened when I left college, Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. This is back in the mid-90s. And I was looking for work, and I stumbled across a, a very unorthodox business, Equal Exchange. It's a fair trade, worker-owned cooperative specializing in organic food, back then focusing on organic coffee. And so I got in there any way I could, started off as the office manager. And I mean, I'd, I was already excited about organic. I was excited about the idea of working with small-scale farmers. But as is the case for so many people, is by doing it, I really became to understand what it was, how much it meant 
for these small-scale farmers, for their cooperatives, for their communities, and also how much it meant for us back here as the buyers of this fair trade coffee, as the coffee drinkers, you know, as the enlightened consumers who are being introduced to these new models. So I was attracted before I went to Equal Exchange, but it was after I arrived and actually started to do it that I became passionate about it. So now you're working for Fair Trade America. Can you briefly explain the mission of Fair Trade America and what you folks do? Sure. So we are a nonprofit certifying and licensing organization. And your listeners will be familiar with labeled products, you know, organic corn or uh, recycled paper products and increasingly fair trade products. So you look at a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and you're going to see a logo on it, blue, black, and green, that tells you that the ingredients, everything but the dairy, was fair trade certified so that the bananas and the chunky monkey ice cream were sourced on fair trade terms. And so we're the third party, the independent third party that is doing the auditing of these supply chains and then licensing our mark so that brands like Ben and Jerry's, Green and Black's, Divine, Endangered Species Chocolate, so that you know that these companies are doing what they say they're doing, that they're delivering higher, more stable prices, and they're not just buying from anybody, but in the case of cacao, coffee, that they're buying from co-ops of small-scale farmers. So that removes the just trust us situation. You know, there is a third party telling you that, yeah, they're doing what they say they're doing. And we are that third party. So, Rodney, you have a current project, or I should say Fair Trade America has a current project focused on coffee. Can you tell us about this project and why it's so important? Sure. Specifically for World Fair Trade Day, we and our counterparts around the world, Fair Trade Canada, Fair Trade Australia, Fair Trade Germany, etc., we're all promoting what's called the world's biggest fair trade coffee break. And so this happens in mid-May. And we're encouraging people all over the world to have a fair trade coffee break, to register that they or their group are doing this. But also, to add an element of fun, there's a challenge to it. So many schools, many faith-based groups are avid supporters of fair trade. And it could be, for example, you know, that you're a Catholic church. Not only are you going to make a point of serving fair trade coffee after service on that weekend, but you might challenge the Lutheran church down the street who also supports fair trade. It's like, oh, okay, well, we're going to serve more cups of fair trade coffee than you are. becomes a friendly rivalry. And it could be your school versus another school, your law office versus the accounting firm down the hall, uh, what have you. It could be your coffee shop, you know, challenging another coffee shop across town. Who's going to serve the most fair trade coffee? And it helps helps that we're all promoting this at the same time, you know, from Stockholm to San Francisco, and that it creates buzz because there's a lot of people doing the same thing at the same time. And it creates an opportunity to do a little education for those folks, could be your colleagues, your fellow parishioners, your classmates who haven't heard about fair trade. We can provide some literature or contest to get people to stop for a second and think about this. So, Rodney, one interest that I have is, is there a corollary within the tea industry, tea production, tea farming, tea harvesting, 
tea trade and, and tea consumption. Is there something within the tea sector? I ask because I'm not a coffee drinker. Sure. Well, there is. And not only with tea, but with most every widely traded tropical commodity, cacao, sugar, bananas, cashews, you, you name it. There's actually hundreds of products like these. And it's because the same kind of history, so it can be deep colonial history, the way these commodities and their markets have evolved over the years have created similar problems the world over where really it's, you know, it's the archetypal little guy. It's the small farmer, the farm worker on the big plantation who always gets a short end of the stick. And that's not only a problem with coffee, but with all of these other commodities. You think about the phrase, a banana republic, which is to say a faux republic that's run by and for banana barons, not for the banana workers or banana farmers. So these are sort of chronic problems worldwide across various commodities. And fair trade was designed to do something about that. So not just for the coffee farmer, but for the worker on the tea plantation or the small scale tea grower in East Africa or Sri Lanka or wherever it is. So yeah, the answer would be yes. <laughs> so why is fair trade an important issue for working class and lower income Americans? Why should American workers care? The shortest version would be if we, you know, as a society, turn a blind eye to the fate of struggling workers elsewhere, that ultimately doesn't help us here. Conversely, if we do show an interest and say, hey, you know, that, you know, looking at what's happening in rural Peru or, you know, the mines of South Africa, if we look at that and say, you know, that just ain't right, that's not acceptable. Well, then that begins a conversation. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, what's happening down the road, you know, in Toledo or, you know, the farm fields of Florida? Well, that isn't right either. It really promotes justice anywhere by turning a blind eye to it somewhere else. And I'm paraphrasing what Martin Luther King said about, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So, Rodney, trade is a really hot topic in this election in the United States. So, let's step out for a second. How would you define fair trade? There are, it's funny, I just gave a class about this. And you could say there's fair trade, two words, which is a movement that goes way back, certainly to the post-war era. And really, any kind of conscientious set of voluntary business practices that are designed explicitly deliver an extra benefit, an extra social, economic, political benefit to the producers. The producers could be artisans of handmade rugs or people picking coffee or for workers on a plantation. It's not charity. It is saying that, you know, through my commerce with you, whatever kind of producer you are, that I'm going to try to apply something of the golden rule. I'm going to put myself in your shoes and ask, well, what would I want? What would I feel was right for me if I was, you know, that worker in the Caribbean or Africa or wherever it is? Now, besides that general goal, which goes way back and applies to all kinds of industries and categories, implies there's nonprofit fair trade enterprises. There are, of course, for-profit ones as well. Now, more specifically, we at Fairtrade America are a part of 
is certified fair trade, where there are specific standards for what does it do to qualify as a coffee farmer or a cooperative of small scale coffee farmers, small scale banana growers? What do you have to do to be eligible to sell into this market? If you're a buyer, it could be somebody big like Starbucks or a small company like Divine Chocolate. What do you, the buyer, need to do so that you can call your cacao, your sugar, your coffee fair trade? And then there's our work as the certifier looking at the supply chains. Okay, who did you buy from? How much did you pay? Are these steady trade relationships? Are you working with the same people? season after season? Did you provide affordable financing? What are the work conditions there on those farms or on those plantations? If workers want, can they freely pursue setting up a union you know, without fear of intimidation? So now you're getting into a codified kind of trade uh, with very specific rules. There's penalties if you don't abide by them. And of course, there's benefits. You know, if you are that farmer selling into the fair trade market. You're getting better prices, access to finance, et cetera. If you're Ben & Jerry's or one of these other participating companies, you can put that mark on your product. So shoppers know that you're doing the right thing. You're, you know, you're doing right by these small farmers around the world. And I can go into a lot more detail because there's a lot of things to cover, but that gives you the idea. We're going to get some, you know, I think in the United States right now, there's this debate going on about trade. And so we're going to start out asking, you know, Donald Trump seems to really going after Hillary Clinton. And maybe to a lesser extent, Bernie Sanders has done the same thing based on Bill Clinton's role and support of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. So was NAFTA a fair trade agreement? Was it good? Was it bad? Who benefited? Who suffered? Sure. You know, when you talk about if something is fair, it, these things can be relative. The first thing I'd put out there is that it's usually posited that, and this is the, the Donald Trump version, they won, we lost. Uh, Mexican got the jobs, we lost the jobs. And it really sort of pits country versus country. I would suggest that ultimately, if you take a bigger view, we care about, I mean, I've spent time living in Mexico, living in Guatemala. And I wanted good things for Mexicans when I was there. They were really struggling. I wouldn't mind if they had more working opportunities. I actually think it's more, frankly, it's labor and capital as opposed to Mexicans versus Americans. And that a trade deal, theoretically, could be very good for workers on both sides of the border. As it is, I would suggest that the way they're written, it puts the owners of businesses, the ones who can move back and forth across the border, that they're the winners, whether they're American or Mexican or Canadian or what have you. And that, that that's the, the real issue. And that the, so for example, we always hear about the workers for the carrier plant in Indiana, you know, that people like them are always, they have hanging over their head, the possibility, oh, we might move. We might go to Monterey or Mexico City or wherever if we don't get these concessions. And it's the threat of that possibility which can sort of lower the hammer on workers. And as trade agreements proliferate, those same workers, they could be in Chihuahua or, or you know, uh, Guadalajara, they're worried about the jobs going to China or somewhere else. 
But the winners all the time are the owners of these businesses. And it's probably, you know, Wall Street and uh, the big financial concerns in London or wherever it is. So that it's not so much about, you know, Americans versus workers in other countries, but it's workers in both countries or every country who are in a struggle with the owners of the businesses. So, Rodney, that slides right into our next question, which is that it seems that many poor and working class Americans in particular on both ends of the political spectrum, if you look at our current presidential campaign in the United States, are opposed to free trade deals that have been negotiated. How are trade deals good or bad for the environment and for working class Americans and our communities? My main concern, and as you often heard, you know, these are thousands of pages thick. So. While I may be the answer man, I'm not going to pretend to have an exhaustive knowledge of all the ins and outs, but I don't think that the secrecy is helpful for, for the environment, for workers, for communities. And uh, we wrote something about this on our blog at Fairtrade America a while ago, and that one of the things we wanted to put out there was we feel good about the transparency of how fair trade is conducted. So, for example, you know, I talked about these rules for fair trade. Well, the farmers and farm workers who are the intended beneficiaries of the of these innovations, they have half the seats and half the ownership of our system. So they're literally at the table, you know, at the board table in the fair trade assembly, helping to hammer out the rules for, you know, what is a fair trade, you know, pineapple, um, as opposed to, you know, a bunch of people hold up in a room in, you know, Geneva or, or New York, deciding for them, what are the rules to participate? And uh, an interesting example of this a while ago was that there were some who wanted to bring more plantations into the fair trade system. And, you know, these farmer sort of owners of the system drew the line and said, no, you know, there are Plantations have access to the fair trade tea category and banana category, but they said, no, you know, for coffee, for cacao, for sugar, these will be preserved just for small farmer cooperatives. So that sort of the, the participants of the little fair trade economy helped to make the rules for the fair trade economy. And we would like to see a similar kind of truly democratic process for these global trade deals. So not so much done in secret where people, you know, from Bangkok to Brooklyn could see the rules that are being proposed and weigh in on them. And that is such a far cry from the way these things are being done now. So, you know, a fair trade America, you know, if I were to summarize, is essentially that the trade be fair for the for the workers. Sure. And and for the farmers. And the growers. Right. The farmers, the work, the farmers. Right. But I think from the, you know, folks in the United States right now for working class Americans, I think that their question is, how is it fair that I should have to compete for my job with somebody in another country who can live on five dollars a day? Right. And so is it possible to structure a trade deal when you have cost of living imbalances that are so great on a global scale? Or is it inevitable that the higher priced markets, the people who come from countries that have um, you know more expensive cost of living are inherently going to lose those trade deals? Well, unless we return to an era of high tariffs, 
yeah, people are going to be in competition with everybody everywhere. And now this is true whether you work in a call center or if you make automobile parts and things like that. One thing that trade deals can do, especially if there's more citizen participation, is to try to minimize some of the most egregious abuses in the system. So it's one thing if the worker somewhere else, you know, the daily wage is $5 an hour. But if they try to unionize and they're threatened or killed, or you can imagine there's a host of ways of exploiting people such that not only is their daily wage $5, it stays $5 forever and ever. And there's nothing they, they can do about it. That's a problem. If you have a factory in your community and it's competing with, say, another one in China or wherever, and if there are no environmental standards for that other community, well, that's going to be a lower cost producer. Their steel is going to cost less than your steel. And so, and there are, I think there are some examples of this in some trade deals where you can try to, instead of having a race to the bottom, you can try to lift the floor uh, where essentially you try to ban what's called environmental dumping. That community that's polluted by that factory in China would constitute a trade violation. Which So they have to improve their standards, which increase their costs, making it a little bit more equitable to the cost you have in Indiana or Pittsburgh or wherever it is. So trade deals can do that. So, you know, trade deals are rules agreed upon by many parties. One problem is that who's at the table shaping those rules? And I personally, you know, Rodney North, would say that too often – it's shaped by money, not shaped by people. You know, these rules are shaped by lobbyists, and therefore it's not the average person in either country who's winning. You know, it's rather the, it's like the party of money. The owners of these businesses, both there and here, that they're the real winners. And so it's not just trade per se or trade treaties per se, but it's the political process. And Naomi Klein talks about this a lot, like when it comes around environmental regulations. And how it's the political process which undermines real environmental regulation and real environmental progress. You know, she says if you could change the political process, that changes everything. Not just, you know, fighting climate change, but all these other things like, you know, inequitable trade or trade treaties or sort of secret trade treaties, non-democratic treaties. So, you know, if you kind of p- keep peeling away the layers of these problems, you know, I'd say it's not our workers versus their workers or our communities against theirs. It's not even just sort of like the poor versus the rich, but you know, what's the political process that has been sort of fueling the current dynamic. Can we change that process to kind of reverse that political process? So we get better outcomes that really serve people. So Rodney, in that context, this is a, a, a little broader, but, but still on this, this train of thought about, how Americans view trade agreements. Is this part of a general sort of lack of understanding of the role and value of organized labor and what labor means and fair payment for labor? I think about that in the context of both Wisconsin and Michigan now being right to work states, two states that I never would have thought, mm-hmm. you know, Wisconsin, the, the home of the labor movement, the farm labor movement in the United States and, and Michigan, you know, ground zero in organized labor. 
But if people don't understand the value of organized labor and being paid a fair wage for your labor in the United States, is it possible for them to be able to understand what's happening with the undermining of workers in other parts of the world? It certainly makes it harder. So we in the fair trade movement have a lot of connections with Europe where fair trade got off to a faster start. It's much better known. And of course, Europe, maybe it's obvious, uh, has a much stronger labor movement. The labor movement hasn't been vilified and degraded the way it has here in the United States. I mean, even north of the border in Canada, the labor, the labor community labor movement is stronger. It commands more respect. It has more political clout. And yeah, I would say that the labor movement and how it's seen by the public here has been sort of so just say worn down, marginalized, that even some people who benefit from you know, an organized labor situation don't appreciate what they have. They don't know what they might lose. And the general public, I'd say certainly the average member of the general public doesn't appreciate what organized labor has done for them. No, we, we don't see that. And, and, and also we, we, the regular working person, which is, you know, 90 plus percent of us don't necessarily understand the value of their own labor and the, the own precariousness of their situation. You know, there is such a sort of perpetuation of this idea that like, you know, you rise and fall on your own merits. And so what happens to you, it's just up to you. And there's, there is this uh, sort of diminution. There, there's this discrediting of the idea that, you know, sometimes groups rise and fall together. And labor as a group has often been disbanded. So workers are off on their own. And you know, one by one, they can be picked off and they keep losing these fights over wages and benefits and job security and, and factory closings and so on. So, yeah, in general, I know I don't think Americans see like the, the value of labor uh, or how it's under threat. And so, no, it's not surprising that it's hard to see and empathize with workers overseas. And we need to change that awareness for the benefit of all workers everywhere. So Rodney, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, a blog post, where can our listeners learn more about your work and that of Fair Trade America? Where can they find that blog post? Sure. So go to fairtradeamerica.org and you can go to our blog. You know, there's a link to it right on the homepage, but also just in the search, type in free trade and that'll bring you to the blog post. And there's, there's more there. Uh, we wrote that in the wake of some of the news about the TPP. And, and there's so much more that we have a lot of content on our website. So I hope people will take advantage of that. That's fairtradeamerica.org. Thank you. So Rodney, these are the uh, lightning round questions. I know that you're prepared. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? I'd have people ask themselves, who made this? Or who provided me with this service? And then just apply the golden rule, you know, empathize with that worker, that farmer, that producer, and start asking questions. That'll lead to a whole chain of consequences, not just possibly in your own behavior, but depending on who you are and what you do, you know, you maybe you run a store or a cafe or you do procurement for a school or a hospital. And you start asking those questions. And applying those values, that could lead to a lot of change, especially if a lot of people do it. 
And what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future, Rodney? Well, for the sake of being succinct, I would say check out cooperatives and and they take all forms. You know, you could look at credit unions, which are kind of financial cooperative you know, as, a, as an alternative to the big banks. Look at worker co-ops in your community as you know, businesses that you might patronize, like Equal Exchange or Namaste Solar in Colorado. You know, go check out NCBA, that's National Cooperative Business Association, ncba.coop. And, you know, there you can learn more about all the different kinds of cooperative businesses. You know, collectively, they're like one of the great untold stories of economic justice in the United States. In the U.S. today, there's about half a trillion dollars in business conducted through some kind of cooperative. That right there, these are sort of options in all of our neighborhoods where we can sort of move the dial a little bit without having to pass new laws, without having to elect new people, you know, a sort of change that you can act on today. So, Rodney, if you're successful in the work that you're doing, what does trade look like 30 years from now? Well, that's actually a question I've gotten before. So I appreciate that. And we, we always say the same thing, that in 25 or 30 years from now, it'll just be called trade. You know, if we are successful, then all trade will be fair trade. And the fair word will just be dropped. And it'll just be trade. I'm not holding my breath, but that's what we're working towards. Rodney, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been a real honor. And we want to thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com. Or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infin Earth Radio. 